For centuries, technology has shaped the power dynamics of nations, advances in agriculture, resource extraction, transportation, manufacturing, and communications have transformed markets, driven economic booms and busts, and produced world superpowers. As today's fourth industrial revolution marches ahead, the focus on technological prowess in securing a nation's future has never been more acute. Constant advances in technology have furthered global commercial interdependence, but the emergence of tech nationalism paired with the advent of cyber warfare offers a substantial protectionist countercurrent. What exactly is tech nationalism and how does it fit into today's interconnected global world? Welcome to another episode of Sound Discussion. My name is Bruce McConnell, and today we are joined by the Chief Trust Officer at Unisys, Tom Patterson. Tom, welcome to Sound Discussion. Well, thank you, Bruce. It's great to be here. Tom has more than three decades of experience in cyber and information security. He holds a top-secret security clearance, and the FBI, Secret Service, and White House have all relied upon his expertise. In addition to his role at Unisys, where he is tasked with extending trust and security to hundreds of global stakeholders, including governments and critical infrastructure providers, he currently serves as the co-lead for the U.S. President's National Security Telecommunications Advisory Committee's Cyber Moonshot Working Group. And he is the author of the book, Mapping Security, the Corporate Security Sourcebook for Today's Global Economy. So Tom, tell me a little bit about your role as the Chief Trust Officer at Unisys. What are the themes of that job and the conversations you're having, and what are you finding when you talk to customers and stakeholders around the world? Oh, Bruce, it's great to be here. Um, I'm thrilled to, to be here with, with you and with EWI. Uh, I think probably many of your listeners have heard of, of Unisys over the years. It's, it's been doing its thing for about 140 some odd years. Uh, but today it is a, a multi-billion dollar global tech company uh, that really focuses on, on building highly secure digital platforms for critical infrastructure across the board and around the world. So we, we take security very seriously. We also take global security very seriously. So uh, we are a global company uh, and uh, we are focused on helping the civilized world better protect their critical infrastructure. It's, it's a, a job that I think unites the world, not divides it. A chief trust officer is a relatively new uh, category of job. Uh, there's not a lot of us out there in the, in the world, but it is a growing number. And it's really the recognition uh, that uh, computer security or internet security or cybersecurity, are, it's more than a technology issue these days. It's not just the ones and zeros. Very critical to understand how all that works. But now you have to understand the business side, the business implications, or it's really no good. You have to understand how it's, it factors in in terms of, of money. You have to understand how it factors in in terms of sort of where the business is going and what they're doing. So you really need to be plugged in on a lot of levels. And a chief trust officer's role is to really work with the stakeholders around the world, work with their clients, work with their partners around the world, so that they understand where we, how we look at security and make sure that we can make, get everybody on the same page so that there is, in, in the very final outcome, you know, great security for our, our global clients. So this global perspective, I think, is critical and just the right uh, place to begin our discussion about this so-called tech nationalism. We're used to thinking about nationalism as a kind of socio-political uh, phenomenon that informs countries, and uh, 
but now we're seeing it in the technology industry. So, so what is this tech nationalism thing and, and why does it matter? Well, tech na nationalism, you know, it's a word that I think was probably developed inside the Beltway, uh, not outside the Beltway, not here in Silicon Valley or, or elsewhere around the world. Uh, but it's, it's a pretty simple concept. It's really this national recognition or, you know, nation's recognitions around the world uh, that they have a, a reliance now on technology for their national defense, uh, for their economic growth, and for their critical infrastructure protection. They can't just, it's not just buying a box and not caring about it and protecting the rest of those things. They really now need to understand what's in that box or what's on that server or what's in that cloud. And even today, it's been difficult to actually understand that and really get a, a, a feel for it. But coming tomorrow, it's going to, the, the old practices are going to be impossible uh, just because the technology is changing so dramatically with this next wave, this fourth generation stuff that's coming out. So, so this tech nationalism approach is really starting to look at how can we assure uh, that what we're doing is really in the best interests and you know, how can we ensure that uh, it's being used for the benefit of critical infrastructure for the civilized world. So much of the conversation on tech nationalism these days has come up in the context of the US-China competition, the strategic competition between the two societies, uh, the so-called trade war, and then there's this kind of tech war that's going on alongside and is tangled up with both of those things. The Chinese, of course, are ambitious and are eager to become a leader in emerging technology. They have their Made in China 2025 program and are thinking in the same way that they want to be sure that their technology is secure and safe for use in their country. And uh, the U.S. is also concerned about Chinese technology and so has taken some uh, approaches with respect to the Chinese technology champion Huawei uh, to restrict both U.S. sales to Huawei and purchases of Huawei technology in the, in the U.S. Was there, in your sense, as you've been watching this debate, a moment which happened in which all of a sudden uh, the U.S. And, and some other allies got worried about this, or has it been kind of building over time? I think it's important, Bruce, to, to understand. You, you have to separate the terms competitor and adversary. Uh, the world has been built on competition. There's competition you know, within a country. There's competition between countries. Competition's been a good thing. It's driven innovation. It's driven evolution. And, and it's part of, part of humanity that, that we all share. Uh, there are also adversaries. And when the adversaries start to, to use the competition to their, their strategic advantage, then it becomes something that has to be defended. So I think we're starting to see more and more, again, that what I mentioned earlier, that, that national recognition of reliance on technology. That's the big thing that's changed. When it was just a, a computer, and if it went bad, you'd throw it away and buy another computer. Now, you know, it's not the blue screen of death, it's actually real death. And so when, when those computers and, and technology can actually destroy an economy and not just blow up a building, uh, then it needs to be looked at in a different lens. And I think that's where we are now. The, the sort of the whole world is now trying to figure this out. And I think the more we work together on solving this common problem, the better it's going to be for everybody. We're, we're moving into a, a time, you know, we've had a generation where the internet has brought us connectivity. But now we're about to move into hyper-connectivity. It, it's such a, a, a scale and a speed that it's so different uh, that the old rules, you know, the five-year-old and the 10-year-old and the 20-year-old rules 
that we've just spent a career building are just not going to apply. So we've really got to look at it. And I think that's what you're seeing now, not just with, with you know, that country pair, but with country pairs all over the world. And it's going to be more. You know, right now it's easy to focus on who builds lots of, of hardware. You know, who's building the handsets, who's building the routers and the satellites and things. And you can focus on that. You can count those countries on, you know, a couple of hands. Uh, but once you get into things like AI, uh, where you have data being the, the commodity, uh, then you're going to have sources all over the world. You should have hundreds of countries contributing on joint projects. So again, that's what I mean when it says the old rules aren't going to apply. But that's, I think, the biggest tipping point. It's, it wasn't one flashpoint or one company or one incident. It was really this growing recognition. And that's what we're, we're here today to try and, and work on together collectively around the world. Although it's convenient to think that you can isolate your problems by isolating technology from a particular country, it doesn't work that way. We're all dependent on multiple suppliers, and so we've got to figure out how to evaluate and secure the technology in a way that everyone can be confident of it and recognizing that we'll never be 100% right. confident. Absolutely, and you know, nowadays most, most companies are global. Regardless of where they have their home domicile, you know, a lot of times they're public companies so that their owners can be everywhere. A lot of times their, their leaders are multinational you know, people. So what is you know, a, a national company anymore? They, the, again, the, the definition has had to change. So we're seeing all this evolve and we're starting to look now collectively at, at ways we can address that because there are real security concerns. Uh, you need to make sure that, that your adversary can't flip a switch and turn off your economy. You know, nobody wants that. So, uh, we, but we can't just go looking at, at uh, a Crane's report to find out you know, what country this, this company is from anymore, or where this, this board was made, or where this software was written. Because it just doesn't work that way, and it's going to get even harder in the near future. Well, I think that's right. And, and so, although these are national security questions that, that governments are trying to deal with, which is their responsibility, it's not clear at this point what the best moves or best actions by government should be in order to both protect security but still let companies do business on a global basis. Yeah, and I don't think it's letting them do business. You're not really seeing that much uh, of, of people stopping uh, global trade happening uh, yet. Um, and, and there's no guarantee that that's the path that most countries are going to go down. You know, I think we're looking at you know, where there are national laws that says, you know, if you if, if you are a company that works here, you must share client data with us as a government. You know, those, those kinds of, of laws are being taken very seriously. That's where you're really looking at it. So there are laws like that in a number of countries. Some of them are adversarial to, to you know, country X and some of them are, are not. Some of them are friendly, but they still have those laws. And so data is really the, it's the new economy. It's, it's, it's what greases uh, all of this future. It's all about the data. So if you are working with a product that is somehow under a rule that says, hey, any data that goes through one of your machines or your servers or one of your clouds or one of your apps or one of your games on social media, any of that, if, if you then have to share it, it with your government, with a government, uh, those are the kind of things that I think in this wave are really being looked at and, and trying to stop. But in terms of, of the next level, when, when you start to have billions of devices talking to billions of other devices without any humans involved, and hundreds of countries' employees now working towards writing code and, and writing data, you know, training data on it, uh, we need to come up with new ways to, to really address that because it's going to get out of hand very quickly.
I mean, one of the complexities of that, both in terms of what's in the data, maintaining the data and its integrity, as well as trying to maintain some concept of the kind of the chain of custody, if you will. In other words, it, it's hard enough to figure out where a piece of software or a, or a board came from, but finding out and figuring out where a piece of data came from and right. who's responsible for it, who the owner is, and all those rules associated with it is hugely complex. But task. we're also at a, at a great time here because there's, there's a really good story part of this as well, and that is these new technologies give us that chance to really try and, and reset the norm on what we're calling cyber nationalism. Uh, we're able to look at the, the changes that 5G connectivity are gonna bring the world. You know, the, this hyper-connectivity I talked about, the changes that AI advancements are gonna bring the world in terms of machines and, and, and bots making decisions on our behalf that can control our life and death. But all that is new. And then you look at new ways to do identity that are, are so far beyond the antiquated, you know, ID and password and, and second factor kind of stuff, where we're literally, we already have systems that, that have hundreds of behavioral biometric markers that go in and create a real-time identity score that can, can be used to verify. All this is new tech. All this is going to be deployed and be sort of normal over the next you know, two, three, four, five years on a global scale. And so when we're bringing that to market now, the time, now is the time, as they say, now's the time to bring, that we're bringing this market, now's the time to include in there, let's use that technology to better make sure we can meet the national and global needs that we have in order to protect ourselves at the same time, advance economies, and make sure we keep separate the word competitor and the word adversary. Well, and, and in some cases, uh, as you say, that the people, countries may be adversarial on some points and you still end up doing business with them. And so it gets, it gets very complicated. I, but I really like this uh, point that you're making about uh, that this is the opportune time to ensure that the security is built into the technology and that we're figuring out how to use all those capabilities in a way that advance our collective security as opposed to undermine it. Correct, and, and it's pretty much impossible to try and bring those old rules that have been developed and say, you know, how are we gonna do this with you know, trillions of transactions a, a second happening around the world and no humans involved? You can't, but if we design systems in and, and we start to rely on trusted systems, and going back to my title, Chief Trust Officer, we think trust is so important in this equation. You know, do I trust you to do business? Do I trust your, this piece of software, this app in the cloud? you're not gonna be able to do it by, by counting K-locks anymore. Now you really have to go in and, and look at it in a much better way. So let's use AI, let's use identity, let's use the hyper-connectivity that 5G brings us for real-time capabilities and zero, almost zero latency. Let's use that to help give us early warning signs and point out things that might be a risk in terms of operational use and not focus pretty much on, on where someone was born. Well, so the point that this really underscores to my mind is that we've always complained, uh, those of us in the security business anyway, have complained that uh, we're always trying to build security in after the fact, bolt it on. Right, right. So this time we don't have that luxury. We really have to, to build it in because yeah. there's no, not gonna be any catch up. Absolutely, and again, I mentioned the Unisys is, you know, builds and operates critical infrastructure on, on global scales you know, for, for whole countries. So we, we operate the power company for a country or the banking system for a country or the passport system for, you know, so big national type systems. And we're having to build, you know, obviously security right, right in from the beginning. 
But our mantra is, is to develop technology that supports the best of humanity while it challenges the worst. You can't eliminate everything. You can't ignore growth, the need for growth. But you can, in fact, design these systems. So we have a, a system you know, that, that helps our clients transact trillions of dollars a day that's never been hacked because it was designed to be mm -hmm. highly available and, and you know, highly secure type system. That's been out in the market for over a decade. So it is possible to do that. And now that we've got AI coming, now that we've got 5G coming, now that we've got identity coming, and don't, we can't forget our, our favorite uh, topic of quantum, um, all that's gonna be you know, deployed in, in, in everybody's hands and pockets and on our wrists or injected into our bodies yep. over the, the next you know, four or five years. And so let's use that. I think it's the only way. Let's work together as a global civilized world. And let's leverage this new technology for a collective defense. Before we wrap up, I want to ask you about your experience uh, working with, uh, with the President's National Security and Telecommunications Advisory Council on this cyber moonshot. What was that about and, and what's happening? What's oh, the future? Uh, you know, that's, that's really been a fulfilling project to work on. And, uh, the NSTAC was actually created in, in the 80s by President Reagan, and it served every sitting president since and, and to this point and, and towards the future. And we were, we were challenged to come up with a report that, said, that tried to solve the question of, can we get ahead of this, this reaction, this reactionary business of always fighting cybercrime and, and cyber problems? Can we make the internet safe and secure for critical infrastructure? in 10 years. That was sort of the open question that the White House issued the NSTAC. And so uh, the NSA CEO, Peter Altebeff, uh, sits on the, uh, on the panel, appointed by the president. And uh, we went to work on, seeing, on trying to solve that. And I'll tell you, when we started, everyone kind of laughed at us. And, you know, it's an, that's an impossibility. There's no way. You don't, you don't understand. There's all this history, and there's all this this and that. And everybody in the world, really smart people, told me why it couldn't be done. But we spent about a year interviewing the best and brightest uh, that the country has and asked very pointed questions and we really drilled down deep. Okay, now, but, but if you could, how would we do it? And uh, we got to a premise uh, that looks like if the country really pulls together, we can in fact leverage this technology like AI and 5G and identity and quantum to develop and deploy a safe and secure internet uh, that still respects privacy, that still respects innovation, that still respects global interconnectivity, uh, but still also allows you to securely vote, to make sure your banking transactions can't be spoofed. These kinds of things that, that run our critical infrastructure. Uh, so we put together this, this report that we issued to, uh, directly to the president, and there have been a series of workshops around the country. The next one is, is on, in fact, uh, uh, national uh, cyber technology and ecosystems. Uh, it's coming up in November in, at Auburn. And uh, we're looking at collectively, let's get everybody together. It's not a government thing. It's not a private sector thing. It's not an academic thing. Everyone has to pull together, work together across. We, we identified six separate pillars that need to evolve and interconnect. But if they did, uh, we had the best and the brightest sort of nodding their heads up and down by the end of this process that we again worked over two years that said, yeah, if we all pull together like this, we can within 10 years, by 2028, make the internet safe and secure for the issuance of critical infrastructure. And that would be a great thing for everybody. So that's where we're, you know, Unisys has focused a lot of our time and that's where we're focused as a future, as a country, and uh, partly as, as the whole civilized world. 
Well, it's an ambitious effort, as you say, but so important. And it's uh, great that you were part of the team that led that visioning. And now, of course, the hard part comes of uh, making it happen and working with the government and the private well, sector we, companies. We, we thank you for coming in and, and helping us vision as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tom, it's been great talking with you this afternoon, and uh, we look forward to uh, continuing our work together. So thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Well, thank you, Bruce. It's great to be here. Remember to look for us on our website, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcast under the name of East West Institute, where you can listen, follow, and subscribe so you won't miss our conversations. Thank you for listening. <laughs>